know if you will, open your Bibles with me again to Ephesians chapter 6, and we are nearing the end of our study. We'll have one more message next week to conclude what we began so many, many weeks ago. And so we're talking about the ability to stand in battle, and the reality is, is that you and I live our lives in the context of a spiritual battle. One of the great challenges that we have is that we can't see this battle because it is of a spiritual nature. Although we might experience in our lives some of the effects of that battle through the people that Satan uses to bring attack against us or to deceive us or to distort the truth of God's word, we are in a spiritual battle with spiritual forces, with wicked things, an evil that is unspeakable, and we are often unaware and ignorant of that fact and just live our lives haplessly and carelessly with regard to the seriousness of that which takes place around us. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at this idea of what we can do to stand in battle. We have this mandate from the Lord to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We do not have a strength in and of ourselves that will prepare us to stand in spiritual battle. We must draw strength from the Lord. And that's what it means to be strong in the Lord, is we gain strength in our relationship with Him. It is our union with Him. It is our communion with Him. And as we spend time with Him, we then receive strength from the Lord, the strength of His might, so that you and I can do more than just survive these spiritual battles, but we can actually be victorious in the midst of these spiritual battles. So we're to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And we are told that we are to put on the full armor of God. We are to put this on, which means that we do not naturally have this as our clothing spiritually. We must intentionally choose to put these components onto us in our lives in such a way that we will then be prepared to stand against the attack of our enemy. We are to put on the full armor of God, meaning that all of the components are necessary in order for us to stand in the battle. If you have just one piece, it's better than none, but it isn't enough. To have most of the pieces is better, but it just isn't enough. We are to put on the full armor of God. We are to be able to stand in this battle. So as we talk about this, we're going to jump forward and pick up from where we left off the last time we were together as we talk about these individual pieces that God has given to us. We have the belt of truth. It is the truth of God's Word. It is the centerpiece of a Roman soldier's armor. And oftentimes, that girdle or that belt of truth would actually connect to the breastplate in the front and the backplate in the back and secure his torso. It was important to have that belt of truth. The belt of truth is who God is and what God has told us in His Word. We're also to be equipped with the breastplate of righteousness, that which protects our most, our most important organs. This breastplate of righteousness is not to be understood as the righteousness of Christ that has been put onto us through His sacrificial death and impugning that on our behalf. But the breastplate of righteousness is our righteous living. It is living our lives in such a way that when Satan attacks, we have a defense in the life that we have lived in obedience to the Lord. I know many, many people, and I know my own life, when I have not walked in obedience to the Lord, I am far more susceptible to Satan's attacks because I don't have the righteousness of life that God wants and expects 
and has commanded me to have. We also need to have the gospel of peace. We are to shod our feet with the gospel of peace. And those aren't special shoes that make a soldier better. It's simply the standing that we have with God, that we are at peace with God. And everywhere we go in the realm of this battle, we must be reminded that we stand one with God, that He is on our side. And knowing that God is with us gives us the ability to continue to stand in the battle. He fights for us. He strengthens us. We're not fighting against Him in the battle. And so it's important for us to remember that to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace is a reminder that we stand at peace with God. Now, this number four that you already see here, the shield of faith, we're going to read in 16 and 17, and here's our section today. So in addition to all, and all that he's already said, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this shield of faith, in addition to all, taking up this shield of faith, and that in addition to all seems to indicate that it's talking about the previous pieces that have already been discussed. So to take up The shield of faith means to raise it up. We're not only to put it on, but we are to raise it up in such a way that we can protect ourselves from the attack of the enemy. There are two types of shields that Roman soldiers wore. And if you've watched any Roman war movie, you'll know what those what those shields are. The small round one that you could put on your arm, it was used in hand-to-hand combat. And then you had the larger shield that was two and a half feet by four and a half feet that a soldier could hide behind and duck to avoid arrows that were sent from an archer's bow some distance away. And I know you've seen the movies where you could actually link these shields together in such a way that it was an impenetrable wall or an impenetrable fortress that would give the, the soldier the ability to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. This is the kind of shield that Paul is talking about. We see that not only in the word that he used, but also in verse 16 when he talks about extinguishing flaming arrows. I'll tell you, if you got a little shield on your hand, you better be fast if you're going to be protecting yourself from flaming arrows because they're going to be coming at you really, really quick. You don't have that kind of uh, hand-eye coordination. You won't have that kind of speed to protect ourselves in this. So they're talking about the kind of shield that we can hide our entire being behind so that we have maximum protection. So as we talk about this shield of faith, there's two options in how we can understand what this means. First one, letter A, is the shield of faith is what we believe. If the shield of faith is describing our content of belief. It would describe our doctrine. It would, it would describe what we believe to be true about God, what we believe to be true about Jesus, what we believe to be true about the Bible as a whole. But what we're going to find is that isn't necessarily Paul's intent here. It isn't in what we believe. It is in whom we believe. This is talking about a basic trust in God, The faith in Christ that appropriates salvation in such a way that it continues to bring blessing to our lives and it strengthens us as we trust in Him for His daily provision and for His daily hope. So the substance of Christianity is very simply this. It is believing that God is and that He rewards those 
who seek Him. By rewarding us, it means that we have His provision. It means that we have His protection. We see this expressed in Hebrews 11.6. It says, And without faith, without trusting in God, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. I wonder how often we come to God... And we echo what was said in one of the Gospels where Jesus says, if you believe, you will be healed. And the man says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. You remember that? How often are we facing what seems to be insurmountable obstacles or overwhelming circumstances in such a way that we come to God and there is this seed of doubt in our mind. I wonder if He's really going to hear me. I wonder if He's really going to do anything about this. I wonder if He really cares. But you see, when we're talking about the shield of faith... We're not talking about what we believe. We're talking about in whom we believe. It is putting our total trust in Jesus the Son, the one that was crucified and buried and raised again and ascended back into heaven for our good. It is our obedience to the Scriptures, understanding that it is His infallible and authoritative Word, and it is the anxious awaiting of the Lord's return in this world. It is our total trust in Him. Our faith is to be set in a God who is and who loves and who provides for and who protects His children and who will do what is best for us. Now, that does not mean that we will, when we are in the midst of a battle that God is going to miraculously whisk us away from the battle. But what God is going to do is He is going to strengthen us for the battle and in the battle so that we can gain the victory. I think about the circumstances and the trials that we experience in our lives. And when we come up against those things, we say, Oh God, I don't like this. This is so uncomfortable. This is not what I bargained for. Would you please remove the circumstance from my life? Because then I'll be able to praise you. Then I'll be able to worship you. Then I'll be able to get on with the task of serving you. But then we read in passages of Scripture, like in James where it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that these trials bring about endurance. And endurance brings about what? The perfection of our faith. So we can't be confused about what God is going to do in protecting us in the battle. He's not going to necessarily remove us from the battle, but He will strengthen us in the battle, challenge us in our obedience and our trust in Him, so that we can grow and learn and continue to conquer the enemies that come against us. We exercise faith every day in our lives. Don't we? You know, there's all kinds of little one-lane bridges here in Pennsylvania. And when you drive over that bridge, you're saying, I believe it's not going to collapse. Isn't that right? When you go to the doctor, you believe by faith that they know what they're doing and they're going to prescribe to you the right kind of medication and that that medication is actually going to help you. We exercise faith every single day. But the kind of faith that we exercise in whom we believe is immeasurably more reliable and more important than the practical everyday faith that you and I practice every day in our life. 
You see, faith is only as reliable as the object that you have faith in. So let's ask this question. Let's suppose that you come up to those little one-lane bridges and you see a car that is in the ditch. Or you yourself have been on a little one-lane bridge and you felt it creak underneath your tires and the next time you come to a little one-lane bridge, you say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing that again. I'm going to go around. Isn't that right? But let me ask you this. Is the faith that we exercise in the God who is and the God who rewards those who seek Him, is that not something that we can be absolutely confident that He is faithful that he is reliable, that he is trustworthy. I'll ask it this way. Has God ever failed? Some of you aren't so sure. You know why? Because God often answers our prayers differently from the way we would prefer. I've experienced that in my own life. When I've come up against these huge obstacles, God, this is not right. It's not fair. I shouldn't have to go through this. I didn't do anything in myself to have to experience this. Aren't you God obligated to remove this from me? Isn't there something special about me that would make it necessary for you to take this away from me? God says, nope. I allowed it. I even planned for it because you need to grow. You need to trust me even when it seems like that's impossible and it doesn't make any sense. This faith that we place in God is going to protect us from the enemy just as a Roman soldier's full shield would protect them from their enemy. See, I don't know, Pastor. I expect you to say that, but it's a very different thing in the daily practice of my life. Well, taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust the Lord to see that He is completely faithful. Be willing to submit your will and your preferences to His will and His purposes, and we will see our faith grow in such a way that when we come up against those obstacles, we're not going to say, why me? We're going to say instead, God, what are you trying to teach me? I need you to strengthen me through this challenge. I need you to strengthen me through the attack that is going to come into my life as a result of this challenge. Because every time we come up against difficult circumstances, you've got to know that the enemy is there and he's going to start whispering. I thought God loved you. I thought God was going to protect you. I thought God was going to provide for you. God didn't mean that. God's really not on your side. These people don't really care about you. And we begin to wonder. And when we begin to wonder, we begin to doubt. And when we begin to doubt, we don't have faith. And when we don't have faith, we're likely going to enter in to sin. So we have this shield of faith that we are supposed to hide behind. It is the person of God that we rely on. And verse 16 goes on to say, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So in the olden days, the archers would soak their tip, the tip of their arrows in pitch, which was a tar-like substance, and they would shoot that arrow from a long distance. And as you hid behind this shield of faith, that shield had a moist barrier on it. So when that 
car burning arrow hit the shield, the shield would actually extinguish it. And that's the picture image. Our faith in God extinguishes the attack of the enemy as we are protected in whom we believe, by whom we believe in. Now, Satan's flaming arrows typically come in the form of temptation. It is a temptation towards immorality. It's a temptation towards hatred or anger or envy or coveting or pride or even doubt. It can it can manifest itself in fear, which can lead to despair, which can lead to distrust, to this end conclusion that, God, you're not here. You don't care at all. I am on my own, and I don't sense your protection at all. We go back and revisit the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. Satan questioned God's word and his motives, and he began to create doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve. We're going to look at that again in just a minute. But doubting God, doubting the person of God, doubting the purposes of God, and doubting the actual word of God that we have at our fingertips is the beginning point of all temptation. When doubt creeps in, we're tempted to distrust Him. And when we distrust God, His word or His motives, we are likely going to sin. So the only way that we can extinguish these flaming arrows that are attacking us in the form of temptation and doubt and distrust is to have faith in God. Now, we look at verse 17, and there's a bit of a twist here that takes place. Verse 17 is actually a separate command than what we find at the beginning of this passage where we're talking about to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So verse 17 reads like this, and take. So the second mandate that we see here from verse 17 is the word and take. It's a different word from verse 16. Verse 16 means to raise up The word here in verse 17 means to receive. And it's kind of a hard way to explain and understand this. So while we are to put on the armor of God, and we have a responsibility in that as we commune with Him, and as we draw strength from Him, this seems to communicate something a little bit different because what it means is that we are now to receive from God these final two pieces of the armor. Now, they're all God's armor. All of these pieces are His armor. But because this word is different, it seems to mean a little bit different from the way we would understand the rest of these pieces of the armor. So the first thing that we receive is the helmet of salvation. So take or receive the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is given to us by the Lord in order to protect us from the most vital part of our relationship with God, and it's no coincidence that it is the helmet of salvation. The head, obviously, cannot withstand a lot of the enemy attack. There's just no margin for error in head trauma and in head injuries. The fact that the helmet is related to salvation indicates that Satan's attacks are going to be directed at our security in Christ and the assurance of our salvation in Christ. So I want to ask you this question. Do you know people who wonder, who really struggle with knowing that they know that they know that I am a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? Do you know people that struggle with their salvation? 
Oh, you know, I, I really last two, three months, I just haven't walked with the Lord. I need to get saved again. I'm not sure God loves me anymore because I've been disobeying in this area. I've actually counseled with people who have talked about a 20-plus year struggle with the assurance of their salvation. And I can guarantee you that Satan is behind such an attack as that. You know, when we don't do what we're supposed to do, when God doesn't respond in the way that we think He should or the way that we would like for Him to, we will often wonder, hmm, am I really truly saved? Have I really truly given my life to Christ? Did I say the words right? Have I followed through in the way that I should? And so for anybody who ever struggles with and wonders about the assurance of their salvation, let me say this. Our salvation rests upon the fact of God's Word, not on our feelings about how we have applied God's Word to our life. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and the not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and not by works, so that no one may boast. So the way of explaining that is this. If you can lose your salvation, then you can earn it. And if you feel like you can earn your salvation, or you can deserve your salvation, then rest assured you can also lose it. But our salvation rests in the certainty of the truth of God's Word. So a Roman cavalryman would use what was called a broadsword. It was two to three feet long. And they would ride through battle, and they would swing that thing with great intent. And those were death blows when you were hit. So when Satan attacks the assurance of our salvation, the security of our salvation, he wants to discourage us in our failures, in our sin, in unresolved problems, in our poor health, or anything else that seems to that seems to be negative in our lives in order to make us lose confidence and the love of God, the grace of God, and the certainty of the care of God for our lives. So Paul is addressing believers here. And so we know that when talking about receive salvation, he's not talking about getting saved. He's not talking to a lost group of people. He's talking about those who have already received Christ as Savior. The only ones who can take up any piece of God's armor are the ones that are already the children of God. Those that are in this supernatural struggle against Satan and against these demonic forces. So trusting in Jesus Christ immediately saves us from the penalty of sin. But there are three aspects about our salvation. Help us understand this a little bit better. So Letter A, the first aspect of our salvation is our salvation is past. It is in our justification. We have already been saved and we have already been made right with God. That has happened in the past, right? There is a present part of our salvation and this relates to our sanctification. It involves our life on this earth where we are in the process of being conformed to the image of His Son. And so we experience a small measure of freedom from the dominating power of sin in our lives. We are under God's grace, and sin no longer is to have mastery or dominion over our lives. We're no longer a slave to sin, but we are now slaves to God. And so we are in this present tense of working out our salvation in this process called sanctification. Letter C 
It is future. Salvation is in the future. It speaks of our glorification. When we shall one day be saved altogether and forever removed from the presence of sin. We will no longer experience the destruction and the wickedness that is in this world. I got invited several months ago to be on the board of the Spanish Health Ministry. And so at our meeting on Friday, the director, Donna, was talking with us about some of the stuff that her clients are going through. And my friend, I want to tell you, it is unspeakable evil that is taking place in our world. Dealing with people who are sold into human trafficking. Dealing with people who have been physically abused and molested. People who have been taken from their families in such a way that their relationships will never be the same. Children who are growing up in such a dysfunctional home that you wonder what will ever come of these lives. This world is filled with evil that we just can't even begin to understand. And there is a day coming when we will be forever removed from the presence of sin. We will be glorified. We will see Him as He really is. And we will be forever set free. It is this final aspect of salvation that Paul has in mind here that is the real strength of a believer's spiritual battle, and that is the future of this glorification, the helmet of our salvation that looks forward to the day when we are no longer mired in the midst of this very difficult and this very ugly battle. If we lose hope in the future promise of salvation, there can be no security in the present struggles that we go through. Do you ever lose hope? Do you ever wonder how much longer I can go on? Do you ever wonder if you can make it another day? You know, when you read the Psalms and you read Psalm 63, and David is on the run for his life, and he's in a God-forsaken wilderness, and his own son is chasing him to kill him, his hope is in the future glorification. We must remember that this battle that we're in is temporary. It is short-term. And if you live to be a hundred, and by all measure, that's a long life, that is but a point in eternity. It is such an immeasurable amount of time, a hundred years in the scope of eternity, and that's what keeps us moving, that's what keeps us standing, that's what keeps us fighting, is the hope of our future glorification. So we are to receive the helmet of salvation. Number two, we are to receive the sword of the Spirit. Verse 17 continues, and take or receive the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword, like the helmet, is given to us by the Lord. It is an offensive weapon, the only one that is mentioned in these six pieces, but it is also a defensive weapon. In hand-to-hand combat, not only did a Roman soldier have a shield that he could protect himself with, but he could also deflect the blows from his enemy with that shield. So what we need to recognize here is that Scripture is absolutely essential in our ability to defend our position in Christ. When we are up against spiritual battle, we have to be able to claim 
the truth of Scripture and to fight back and to defend ourselves from the attacks of the enemy. Now, Satan will attack us in many, many ways, but there are three primary ways that he's going to attack us as we look at this today. Letter A, it is the lust of the flesh. It is those sinful passions, those sinful desires, those worldly cravings that we have in our life. We see them, we think about them, and we are instantly drawn to those things in such a powerful way that we wonder, how can I ever resist such a powerful force in my life. When you go back and look in the garden at Genesis 3, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was good for food. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and he ate. Letter B, you have the lust of the eyes. The uh, the avenue of worldly things, it is those things that we see that are appealing to us. We see something, ooh, I kind of like that. I think my life would be better if I had that. So I am going to do everything I can to acquire that because it's going to make me a somebody once I have that. And so there is this thing that is a delight to our eyes that makes us drawn to it. And we see again in Genesis 6, 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes, not only was it good for food, but it was a delight to the eyes. It was pleasing to her. She took from the fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband also, and he ate. Let her see there is the pride of life. It is the pride of man that says, I am self-sufficient, I am self-reliant, I don't want them to need anything, I don't need to need anything, I want to stand on my own two feet, and I'm, I want to be a good American, and I want to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I want to press on in my own strength. It is the very basic pride of life that Satan will use to tempt us to distrust God and to stray away from God. Again, in Genesis 3, When the woman saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So there is this thing that is desirable to us. It connects with our sinful cravings. There are these things that we see with our eyes, and they are pleasurable to us. There are these things that we are convinced will make our lives better, And we are drawn to these things and our enemy will introduce these things to us in such a way to cause us to distrust God, to doubt God, and then to disobey God. The Word of God is our only weapon when being tempted and attacked by the enemy. Now, here's something that's very interesting. It's worth noting here that when Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he uses a different word for the Word of God. He doesn't use the word logos, which refers to the general statement or the general message or the general truth about God's Word. He uses the word rima, which speaks to specifical, individual, and particular statements about The Word of God. So what Paul is doing here is he's not talking about the general knowledge of Scripture, but he is emphasizing against the precision that comes by knowledge. Excuse me. But he's emphasizing the precision that comes by knowledge and understanding specific truths that come from God's Word. 
So it's not enough just to say, well, I'm a child of God. You have to be able to specifically defend against the attack that the enemy is throwing at you and fight blow for blow, temptation for truth, so that we can withstand those attacks. This is exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness, and we need to use specific scriptural truths to counter specific satanic falsehoods and temptations in our lives. Here's the bottom line. Christians who simply rely on their experience of salvation and their feelings to get them through are vulnerable to all sorts of attack and temptation from the enemy. Being unaware, being unknowledgeable about the specific teachings of Scripture is not going to prepare us for the specific temptations that we are going to face in our life. We must be prepared to counterattack blow for blow, temptation for truth, if we're going to stand in the battle. That means we need to read, we need to study, we need to meditate on, and we need to memorize Scripture so that we can fight against the enemy. Now, I'm going to throw at you very quickly six things about the Word of God. Six things that will help us in these battles that we face. Number one, letter A. The Word is our source of truth. It is not a source. It is the source, meaning there is no other source of truth for us. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. People today look everywhere for answers to their life. People are desperately searching for something that is worth believing And you and I can be guilty of that if we're not finding the source of the Word of God as the source of truth for our lives. The source of all truth that we find in the Word tells us all that we need to know about God and man, about life and death, about time and eternity, about right and wrong, about heaven and hell, about damnation and salvation. It is God's Word spoken to man. Don't listen to your friends. Don't listen to your neighbors. Listen to the truth of God's Word and find the source of truth. Letter B, the Word is our source of joy. It's not a source. It is the source. We find a lot of happiness in temporary circumstances. There's been times where my kids have made me so happy, I just didn't think I could contain it. But guess what? The happiness that children bring is temporary, right? But the happiness, the joy that we have in the Lord, in His Word, lasts forever. Luke eleven twenty eight. He said, on the contrary, blessed, happy many times over are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. No person can be happier than when he discovers, accepts, and obeys the Word of God. Let us see. The word is our source of growth. First Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You know, you're going to learn through the lessons of life in general, the hard knocks of life. You're going to learn things just as you get older. But if you want to grow spiritually, your source of growth is going to be found in the Word of God and applying that to our life, most especially in times of battle and struggle. Letter D, it is our source of power. 
Now, we talk about the source of power. We're talking about the power of God's word in us, not so much in the power that we have in the sword that we might shake around in the midst of a battle. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of a joints of marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Make no mistake about it. When God's word penetrates into our souls, it is going to provide power because we're going to rest on the truth of God's word. We're going to stand in the provision that God has made for us and we will be able to withstand the battle. Next, letter E, it is our source of guidance. We read in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word will direct us in the way that we should go. Lastly, letter F, it is our source of comfort. When we are in the midst of the battle, when we are feeling overwhelmed by our circumstances, when we're not sure we can make it another day, the word is our comfort. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Think about that. That in the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. How you doing in the battle? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and put on the full armor of God. These six things that God has provided for us prepare us to be able to stand victorious in the battle as we commune with Him in His Word and prayer in submission and agreeing with God that His way is best. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the provision that You made for our lives. We thank You that You have not left us hopeless and helpless in this battle that we face. But God, I also pray that You would make us very aware of the battle that we are in. I pray, Father, that we would not run from the battle, that we would not shrink away from it, but that we would rest in you, that we would have faith in you, and that we would be able to stand and fight against our enemy in such a way that we would grow and be strengthened and be able to participate in the purposes that you have for our lives and making a difference in this world. Father, we cannot do it without you and how we pray that you would be faithful to meet our every need as we seek to honor you